I have been privileged and graced by the Lord to be able to lead this, uh, lead this church. Those of you, there's a few hands up that it's your first time here. I am Brandon Watts, the lead pastor here. It is our last Sunday as a Bible study slash soft launch. We're actually launching a church next week. That's huge. You guys should be excited. I'm excited. You know, our, our, our mission statement is we exist to join Jesus in his mission to redeem our city. And it's such a complex city to plant a church in. In many ways, you know, those that go by the church plant book, it's almost church plant suicide uh, with the transiency of the city, uh, the different dynamics, the gentrification. In many ways, we represent starting a church what uh, Bed-Stuy hates, which is gentrification. And so you have all of these odds against you, but the Lord has been gracious. This is how you know Matthew 16 is legit and it's real, where it says, when Jesus said, I will build my church. And so if he's building it, there's nothing that can stand against that. Nothing. And, and I love the fact that he, he doesn't say that we're building his church. He doesn't even say that he's building our church, but he's so clear that it's his church. He's building it. He's in control of it. And uh, we get to join and listen, I just quickly want to re-mention again Launch Sunday. It's a really big Sunday for us. We are really excited. We're going to celebrate. We've been spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, just trying to make sure that the day goes well because we really want to, want to kick this thing off uh, well for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. So, you know, Gabe joked around about bringing 10 people, but if, you, uh, you know, if, you, if you've been enjoying your time here at Epiphany Church, bring friends with you, bring family members with you to help us to celebrate what it is that the Lord is doing here. He is up to some great stuff. I love Nehemiah 2 where it says, the good hand of the Lord is upon me. I love that Nehemiah said that, and I, I just feel and sense that, and it, it's been just a, a real joy to be able to walk this, uh, these 11 months with you guys. Listen, Colossians chapter 3 is what, we be, what we'll be today. If you could grab your, your Bibles, meet me in Colossians Hey, one of the things quickly, as you guys are turning there, one of the things I didn't mention to you guys that I want to mention quickly is we have a partnership with a school here in Bed-Stuy called Excellence Boys School. Um, in fact, our, our beloved Victoria works there. Um, but it's a, it's a school that we, I mean, just have cared for uh, last year a couple of times, done some things with them, school supplies, loved on their teachers as well. Uh, we want to go deeper with that partnership. One of the things they're looking for is mentors. And so uh, mentors and slash tutors. So they do like a every other Saturday deal where they're preparing for, is it the ELA? ELA standard test, yeah. So they're preparing for that. Um, and part of that preparation, if, if you guys, some of you have giftings of uh, being able to tutor people in math and um, all of those different areas. We'd love for you to bring those skills and serve a couple of Saturdays to be able to mentor and, and tutor some kids. And so if you want more information on that, we'll announce it again next week. If you could see Janelle, Janelle, if you could just raise your hand. Janelle is the area director of, of Young Life here in Bed-Stuy, and so she, she's really intricate part of our spark in that partnership. Colossians 3. Listen, we've been going through the entire book of Colossians uh, line by line, verse by verse. We haven't skipped anything. I, I almost wanted to skip last week, uh, but we haven't skipped anything within the book of Colossians. Um, and it's been, it's been really fruitful. How many of you guys are enjoying your time in Colossians? Whoa. I felt a certain way. Like, 
Nothing will humble you like that. Listen, uh, if you guys haven't been enjoying your time, I've been enjoying our time in Colossians. It's just a, it, it's an amazing book that, um, that, that Paul wrote to a, a really a strong church that he was strengthening deeper based on the gospel. He didn't use any other tools but the gospel to strengthen his church. And so we've been going through Colossians since, uh, it has to be since like October, middle of October we started. I actually have an end date, so we're going to end the last Sunday of April. We're gonna, we'll be done with Colossians. We'll go through all four chapters by the end of April. And then I'm jumping into a series on the church called The Bride of Christ. And that series will just go through different dynamics of the church, the universal church, which is all believers. Anybody that has placed their faith in Jesus Christ is baptized into a body of believers called the church. So it's a universal church. That means you have a brother and a sister that's a part of the body in Uganda or, or Malawi or some other part of the world, and we're all connected by the fact that we believe in Jesus. But we really flesh that out through the local church. And so that's what we're doing here, building and trying to grow a local church. And so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the local church, the universal church. We'll talk about Jesus as the head of the church. I'm not the head of the church. Leaders aren't the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. We went through that in Colossians. Talk about biblical community. We'll talk about elders. Our church believes in elders, right? I'm the only elder uh, or pastor at the church right now, but at some point, the Lord will raise men up, and as he does that, we will appoint them as elders, deacons, and we'll talk about this every, uh, at least for two months. So we'll do April, and then we'll do, uh, actually, we'll do all of May, and we'll do all of June. We'll spend two months just dissecting resources of the church. How does the church spend resources? You guys, many of you give to our church faithfully. Praise God for you. I am grateful for you. Um, but we need to talk about what does the church do with resources? How do we handle resources? What should you be thinking? Maybe you had a bad experience with churches taking money and um, embezzlement. Like These are things that we want to talk about so that we can uh, glory and, and uh, give, God, give God glory through our time. So we'll do that. We'll, do, we'll jump into, after that, another series on prayer. So we'll do about a month, month and a half on prayer, and then we'll start another book of the Bible, probably Old Testament. Um, but each time we get together, what, the, the one thing that you can always be sure of is that Jesus is going to be proclaimed on a consistent basis. All right, let's read Colossians chapter 3. Um, we'll do 12 through 14 today. It says this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a, if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together and perfect harmony. I, I just want to preach, talk, teach, whatever you want to call it, for a few minutes from uh, this passage. And I want to title this, Putting on the New Self. Putting on the New Self. Let's pray. Father, we, are, uh, we, we confess our need for you today. Confess that we, um, we can't do anything without you. I mean, I, I, I can't proclaim your word without your spirit being present. Uh, we can't hear your word without 
your spirit being present. And so just as you hovered over the water in Genesis 1, would you hover over this place now and speak to our hearts, open our hearts, convict us in areas where we need conviction. Uh, I pray for the believer in here that you would strengthen them through your word, that the gospel uh, would be our only hope. Also pray for the non-believer, the person that is just curious, that's just intrigued. Maybe someone drugged them here. Um, I pray that you would open their hearts and just reveal your love and your compassion, which we'll see in this text today. Use this time for your glory. Let us not walk out of here and be the same, but let us walk out of here transformed uh, by an encounter with Jesus. In Jesus' name, we do pray and give glory. Amen. Amen. Listen, years ago, I went to the Ricky Lake show. Uh, Come on. Don't judge me. Fellas, listen, somebody bought me a ticket. So, no, I'm lying. I stayed up all night to get this ticket, and I got it myself. I'm just coming clean. So I went to the Ricky Lake show, and uh, I get there. And so the way they do it, has has anybody in here ever been to the Ricky Lake show? Uh, See, you in there. So I went to the Ricky Lake show, and, um, and when I got there, they had two tapings. So what they do is they try to tape a bunch of shows, as many as they can in one day, so that they can spread them out and show them. Uh, throughout the week. And so I go to the show, and the two shows that they had, one was like Baby Mama's Drama. Um, I was young. I was like in high school. Baby's Mama Drama. And then the other one was Extreme Makeovers. Now, that is my favorite type of a show. When you take somebody that looks one way and then clean them up, whatever you do to them, and make them look a whole nother way, it is amazing to me. So I go to this Ricky Lake show, and they bring this man and this woman out. This woman, I mean, she didn't cut her hair for something like 40 years. Like, her hair was, like, all the way down here. I don't even know what split ends are, but they were like, oh, she has split ends. And I'm like, I feel real, I don't feel manly today talking about Ricky Lake and split ends. This is just not. But anyway, so she has this long hair. This other guy, he has, like, this beard, and he just, he just never cut his hair. And, and so... They say, well, we're going to do an extreme makeover. Their husband and their wife were there. Their family is there. They send this, these two people out, and for two and a half hours, they send them in this room, and they do this makeover. We don't see any of what they're doing. I'm sure you know, the show showed some back, you know, backstage, behind-the-scenes stuff. I didn't see anything that they were doing. They bring them out two and a half hours later, and they look completely different. I mean, her hair was cut short. I don't know how you do this in, a, in two hours, but they colored her hair. Her eyebrows were on fleek. Can I say that? You, can't, you couldn't say that back then, but her eyebrows were, were done, and, and he looked nice, and he was groomed, and he was in a suit, and so the family members come out, and they're crying, and all this stuff is happening. This is what the spiritual life should look like. Our, our spiritual lives, many of us need a spiritual extreme makeover. So last week, we talked a lot about taking off, right, putting off the old self. We talked about killing those things that were earthly in us, and and we went really, really hard, uh, at least in that text. This week, Paul does something that I I would even say is equally as important as last week. As hard as as it was to hear, man, there are some areas in your life you you need to kill, you need to identify. We talked about putting it to death. What is that it in your life that you need to identify? We went through all of these things, but this week, I'm going to argue and say putting on the new self is just as important as what you killed and what you took off. So maybe some of you made that list that I talked about and you shared it and you found some fighting verses. Ha- you have accountability now. The truth of the matter is you need accountability on what you 
are doing from here. We have to replace bad habits with good ones. If you don't, you'll be left empty. I gave the analogy of going up and down Halsey, tear down all the houses and don't rebuild houses. You have homeless people. And so many of us uh, fall into that. We're great. We are great at killing those things that are earthly in us, but putting or replacing it with something that is godly, virtuous, we struggle with. Let's look at what the verse says. It says, put on then. He's really using the analogy of of clothes, taking off clothes and putting on clothes. This is pure illustration. If I go home right now, take off all my clothes and then go back out the house and don't put on clothes, I mean, I'm going to get arrested for indecent exposure I might get shot. I'm not sure. Like, it's a dangerous thing to do. Nobody would do that. There's not anybody in here that would go home, take your clothes off, and then go back out without putting anything on. But yet in our spiritual life, we take off all of this stuff. We kill, we identify, we kill all, the, kill all of these areas, but we never put back on, never put into place those areas, uh, more things in those areas. I want you to notice something Last week, Paul gave us two sets of lists. Each one of those lists had five things in them, right? He had five sensual sins, and then he were really four sensual sins and one that was connected, which was covetedness. And then he gave us five uh, uh, speech sins, if you will. So he gave us two lists, five and five. He gives us another list today. It is not um, something that we should run past that he gives us another list of five. To replace those five, he gives us a whole another list. Many of us fall back into sins because we kill, we identify, and we never replace. We never find something else that needs to go in the place of what we are struggling with. And so we're left empty, right? We're left empty. And so he says here, he says, put on then as, God cho- as God's chosen, holy and beloved. Now, before he even gives the five things, the five virtues, if you will, that's all they are. All they are is five characteristics of godly virtue. Before he even gives the list, he secures them in who they are by giving them three descriptions of, of who they are. Three of them. Now, this is important. Let me tell you why this is important. Because if he just runs into giving a list, What will happen is we'll look at the list that he gives us and say, well, all I got to do is that, and then I'm saved or I'm a godly person. That's all. All I got to do is find these five five areas. I could be compassionate, kind, and humility, and meekness, and patience. I do those five things, and me and the Lord are cool. But he doesn't do that. Before he even gives one thing in the list, he secures them. In who they are. Look at the first thing he says. I want to go through all three of them. He says in verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones. This would have been, uh, this title would have been very normal for the Jew. Why? Because Israel, that's in the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament, God over and over again calls Israel my chosen people. You are my chosen people. But the thing about this text is, Paul is preaching or writing this letter to a Colossian church who is primarily made up of Gentiles. So it's not all Jews there. So this is the first time they would have ever felt any acceptance hearing that I'm chosen by God. Can, can, I, can I tell you in here, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, no matter what sin you're currently in a cycle of, 
you are, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've trusted Jesus, you are chosen by God. Do you like feel the weight of God choosing you? You didn't choose him. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in Luke chapter 15, where the coin was chosen. The, the woman went after the coin where the, where the shepherd goes after the sheep. God chooses us. And so the Bible says here, God's chosen one. This is evident that, that there are Gentiles in the mix here because in chapter one, he says that they were alienated. Israel would have never felt alienated. And so he says that they're alienated. In chapter two, he talks about uh, uncircumcision of their flesh. Israel would have been circumcised, part of the covenant. And so when he says here, God's chosen, he's not just talking to Jews, but he's talking to people who would have never heard this term. This would have never been labeled on on them. Do you realize, like, I want you to understand and feel that, that you're chosen. You know how, how many people struggle with never feeling like they're a part of anything? You are a part of God's body if you've trusted Jesus. So he lays this on them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning for salvation. So in other words, before you were a twinkle in your father's eye, God already chose you. He didn't give you a chance to get it right. He didn't give you a chance to mess up. Before you were even born, God chose you. Is that not good news for us? Ephesians 1 will tell us before the foundations of the world, before he created even the world, he looked into time and said, she's mine. Looked into time and said, he's mine. Before he created anything, God chose you. I don't want to run past the fact. And, and, and the thing about this choosing, this choice of, that, that God makes is he doesn't choose you because you're cute. He doesn't choose you because you got it all together. He chooses you purely based on his grace and his compassion and his willingness to put grace on you. It's the only reason he chooses you. I used to play, I used to go down to the, to the basketball courts. I was never that good, but I would go down to the basketball courts when I was a kid. And uh, the, the thing we would do is we'd sit on the sideline while the game before us was going, and we'd say, hey, I got next. You don't have a team with you. You have to pick your team from the people that are there. So normally you picked your team. I'm just telling you how we did it. Normally you picked your team based on people that you knew that were good, or you looked at the game before you and said, ah, they're losing. Because the losing team gets off, winners stay on, right? So we look at the, the team that was on and be like, ah, they're losing, but he's really good. I'm going to choose him. I'm going to pick him. So our choice, my choice, was always based on the skills that that person could bring to the team. Jesus, God doesn't choose you based on what skills you bring to the table. You bring nothing. Let me just get this out of your mind. You bring nothing to the table. This isn't Shaq and Kobe coming together. It's not like God has a weak left hand or a a bad free throw, and he needs you to help him out. No, he picks you purely based on he knows that you need value. He knows that you need him. And so those of us that feel broken, those of us in here that may feel like that, that we just can't get it together. You're a perfect candidate to be chosen by God. You are a perfect candidate to be chosen. So God, look, he doesn't do like I did. He doesn't look at the team before me. He doesn't pick based on who he knows has skills. He looks at the bench, the ones that couldn't make it and says, that's my squad. 
That's my squad. So you bring nothing to the table. But, but there's one more thing I, I want point to point out about this choice. This choice that God, God makes isn't only unconditional in terms of you bringing anything to it. It's also irrevocable. He didn't choose and then say, man, that was a bad choice. Like the Trinity is not in heaven scratching their head, looking at your situation going, man, why did we choose this one? They're not going, spirit, you messed up. Why did you choose him? Jesus, you shouldn't have died for this one. No, if he, cho- if he chooses you, you are eternally chosen. You, you can't, he can't pull it back. He doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't, he doesn't, and he doesn't choose based on the fact that he knows that you'll get it together. He chooses you in the midst of where you are now. Romans 5, 8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for some future you to get it together. He didn't wait for some future you to to be more disciplined in your prayer life, some future you that's more disciplined in your reading, more disciplined in this overcoming this area of sin. No, he chose you in the midst of where you are right now. In that, he said, that's mine. I'm going to choose him. Deuteronomy 7, 7 says, it was not because you were more in number than any other, per- than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you. Listen, listen to this. For you were fewest of all people, but it, be, it, but it is because the Lord loves you. He didn't choose you because you were great in number or because you brought anything. He chose you because you were fewest of all people. He, know, he knew you needed him. He doesn't need you. He does not need you. And so Paul shows us here uh, that the choice that God, God makes is, is unconditional and it is irrevocable. And so now he's strengthening them. Before he gives them a list, he says, listen, you're chosen by God. The second thing that he tells them, he says, put on then as God's chosen, listen to this description, holy, he calls This group of people, holy, holy just simply means set apart for God himself. You are set apart. If you've trusted Jesus, you're holy, but you're set apart for God. And let's describe this holiness because many of us will think, man, I'm holy purely based on my performance. I'm holy because I I got it together. There's two types of holiness that the Bible often refers to. One of them is positional holiness. That means the moment you believe, if you've trusted Jesus, the moment you believe, you are deemed holy. You didn't do anything. The moment you believe, you're deemed holy. That's called positional, positional sanctification or positional holiness. The other one is practical holiness. How many of us can be honest? Yes, I'm deemed holy because of Jesus' righteousness, but let's be honest. Practically, I'm still a hot mess. I still can't get it together. And so he chooses, he says, man, you are holy purely based on my righteousness, but then there's practical holiness, and that's what we try to, we strive for that daily. See, heaven isn't some place, see, salvation isn't some place that we're we're trying to get to heaven. No, it's Christ-likeness every day, striving to look more like our Savior, striving to look more like Jesus. And that doesn't mean that you will be perfect the moment you believe when you believe in Jesus, we believe that you are going, you should be on a track going from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Don't want no baby that is born. We expect to get a job and pay some bills. 
like you gradually see that 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 infant mature and grow, right? My kids are 12 and about to be 13 and 10. So every week I want to see more maturity out of them. That's what we should be expecting. And so positionally we are holy, but practically we're still striving for holiness. And so he secures them in that. He says, God's chosen people, holy. And the third is beloved. That just that means they were dearly loved by God. Do you know how many people struggle with knowing that God loves them? That God loves you. Like, think of you. Like, don't think of your neighbor. Don't think of anybody else. God loves you. Where you are, he loves you. That's amazing to me that God loves us. And he doesn't just love us. Ephesians 2, 4 will say that he loved us with great love. Like, he doesn't just love you a little bit. He doesn't just tolerate you. He loves you with great love. And the greatest way to see, the greatest demonstration we get of God's love is the cross. There's no other greater demonstration than that. Like, he gave his only son for you. Most famous verse, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His love provoked him to be generous. And so God does love you. Doesn't matter what, what you're in right now. Doesn't matter the cycle that you can't break out of. I'm praying that you're moving, you're getting accountability, you're moving towards holiness. But the truth of the matter is where you are, God loves you. I quoted Romans 5, 8 uh, earlier that, that, that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That is uh, great, 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 great love. Let's keep moving. He says in verse 12, Put on then, as God's chosen, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now he's about to go into the the five virtues, the, the, the five things, the list. He says the first one is compassionate hearts. I love the King James, the old King James. That's what when I my father was an old Baptist minister, so I grew up in a in a King James household, the these and thous, all of those. I love the King James version because it, it renders this thought more literally. See, it says here, compassionate hearts, but King James Version says bowels of mercy. Talks about the stomach. See, this is talking about emotion. When it's talking about compassionate hearts, it's talking about the emotion. Right now, we think that emotions, our culture says emotions is based on the heart, right? Uh, February 14th, we celebrated what? Valentine's Day. Some of you ladies may have got a, a, a box of chocolates that was in the shape of a heart. Maybe you got a card that was in the shape of the heart. But in ancient time, they didn't identify emotions with heart. They identified it with the stomach. Now, we can attest to that. You ever get hungry and it just change your whole attitude? <laughs> like your emotions is all messed up because you're hungry. So it would make sense that they thought the connection between emotions and the stomach was a connection. So bowels of mercy. He says, put on compassionate hearts. We must be a compassionate church, a church that cares for one another, and cares for the lost. That's what leads you, that's what leads you to share the gospel, is when you look at somebody that you know doesn't know Jesus and you're moved with compassion. Jesus was often, he looked at crowds, was moved with compassion. You, do you know that there's 55, almost around 55,000 homeless people in New York City? Within the five boroughs, 55,000. I walked to Walgreens this morning after we got to the, to the space here, I walked to Walgreens and, and got stopped by two homeless people. 
And, and see, so even if I don't have money, I want to at least have a conversation. At least have a conversation. How you doing? How's your day going? And when I was in Philadelphia, before we moved here, uh, my wife and I was on, we, we were going to lunch on 17th and Market. I'll never forget it. We saw a young lady and a, and a man. They were boyfriend and girlfriend. And they were asking us. They were homeless. They were asking us for money. And I, don't, I have no clue why that day we both were like, well, let's not, we don't have any cash on us, but let's take them to lunch. And so we told these two homeless people, hey, y'all want to go to lunch with us? We're going to grab something to eat. We go down, I don't know if y'all heard of Qdoba's. Qdoba's is, it's legit. It's <laughs> legit. It's, it's kind of like uh, uh, Chipotle. Oh, y'all know. Y'all been down to Philly. <laughs> Do they have Qdoba's here? It's one on 14th. I got to go to that one tomorrow. Um, so anyway, so Qdoba's, we, we were like, man, let's, let's grab them, invite them. So we go sit down, dirty fingernails and all. I'm just being honest. I'm like, okay, this is going to be a stretch for me. I've never done this. Sit across from them, and we're having a conversation, and we found out so much. We got to find out who they were. It was deeper than just, hey, here's a couple of dollars. We got to find out who they actually were, exchange numbers. They had little prepaid cell phones, exchange numbers, find out what ways we could serve them, bought them groceries. We just stayed connected with them until they left the city. There was another guy there named Dennis. I'll never forget Dennis. Every Sunday after church, my family and I would drive by the same corner and see this man, Dennis. My, my youngest son, the first time I've ever seen him pray for anybody was this homeless man, Dennis. And so we would, I mean, we'd just pull up and just hang out with him. We'd bring him groceries. We'd find out, uh, what, what's the, the, the road to, um, I forget what it's called, but there, there, there's a road that all homeless people are trying to get on to, like, it's a, it's a term, for anyway. Um, so anyway, we're talking to him about this road that he's on to get to, it's not legalization, but to be a, a, an actual person that can sust- be sustained and stand on his own two feet. And so we're talking to him about that, trying to help him, trying to figure out ways we could help him, praying for him. Man, there's 55,000 homeless people here. I'm not saying take care of all of them, but I am saying there's something in us that should be moved to compassion when we see people that are less fortunate than us. When you see somebody that is down, someone that has no voice, that's the person that we should be moved to, to compassion with. This time and age, this, I mean, this culture was the most like lacked compassion like crazy. And so the church, if nobody else has compassion, the church must have compassion. The church must have it. And so Paul says here, he says, be, be moved with compassionate hearts. Let's look at the second, th- second thing he tells them to be, to be moved with. He says, be moved, he said, with kindness. Do you see this virtue, kindness? Now, many of us struggle, especially New Yorkers, like, we struggle. Like, it's a stretch to be kind. Well, our natural bent is to be rude and nasty. Let's just be honest. Oh, come on. Y'all going to start. Come on. Y'all know. Our natural bent is not to be kind. It takes intentionality to be kind. Paul says, put on kindness. Now, when Paul is talking about putting on, just so you guys know, Paul, in his mind, he's envisioning this word, uh, the, the original language, put on, put on then, he's really talking about, it looks like clothes. So I talked about, you know, going in the house, taking off my clothes and coming out, not having on any clothes. Paul is literally talking about putting on clothes. So it's like you put on your shirt, you put on your, Paul is describing how Christians should be dressed. Be dressed in compassionate hearts. Be dressed in kindness. And kindness is 
a stretch for all of us, but uh, if we're going to be serious about the gospel, we have to be serious about being kind. You know how hard it would be for somebody to walk in this door, be met at the door with rude and nasty attitudes? First of all, that kills the gospel. So before I could even open this Bible and say, hey, we've been in Colossians. I, y'all know I say the same thing every week. Been in Colossians, and now we're going through this, da, 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 da. Before I can even get to this, they've already sized our church up by how you said hello at the door. And so kindness is huge. If we're serious about seeing, not this church grow, if we're serious about seeing people meet Jesus, we have to stop killing opportunities because of our bad attitudes. Kindness. We must have kindness. The Oxford English Dictionary described kindness as this. It says the Greek meaning of kindness is wine that has grown mellow with age and has lost its harshness. That's what it describes kindness as, losing our harshness. And many of us, that's our... Maybe you've had a bad day. Like, I'm not saying everyone has to come in here every week with a great attitude. But if you've had a bad day, you have to be more intentional to be kind. That's how simple it is. Kindness is what Paul is talking about. Look at the next one. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility. Be humble. And you're not humble because you say I'm humble. Nothing shows more pride than a person saying I'm humble. <laughs> like, can you imagine that dude that's like, yeah, man, I'm so humble. It's like, no, you're not humble. You are prideful. William Gladstone, the prime minister of England in the late 1800s, is recorded as saying, while, hu- while humility is the sovereign grace of Christianity, listen to this, the Greeks had no symbol in their language to denote humility. The Greeks didn't even have, they, didn't, they, were, they just didn't have a symbol for humility. And so many of us, even though Paul makes this virtue one of the top Christian virtues, many of us, it's just not, not our natural thing. Many of us don't know how to be humble. I'm not sure if I said kindness. I meant to say humility. Some of us just don't know what it takes to be humble. And truly, being humble (laughs) is a sign of Christ-likeness. Our Lord and Savior was humble. Do you know how much humility it took for him to step off of his throne? Like where he's being worshipped 24 hours a day and step off his throne to come down here to dwell amongst us. Like one of the great, like there's a scripture in the Old Testament that says, they, re- they blindfolded Christ and struck him in the face on, on, during the crucifixion. Blindfolded him, struck him in the face. Do you know how humble, how much humility it had to take for him to be struck in the, in the face with a hand that he created? Like, that's crazy. But many of us are like, man, we, we struggle with humility, yet Christ is able to be uh, completely humble. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Some of us are so self-absorbed. Oh, I mean, and I'm, I'm in this. Like, I'm not, I wish I could sit out there and be listening to this today. I am, I'm not saying this like I'm great at this. I struggle with humility. Like, let's just be honest. Most of us are selfish. We're self-absorbed. But if you read the, a couple of verses before the one I just read, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Like, think about how heavy that verse is. Count others. Count somebody else as greater than you. Don't be competitive. Let's keep moving. And so he's listed out a few already. Compassionate hearts. 
kindness, humility, meekness. Now, we take meekness as meaning weak. Like I'm passive because I'm meek, especially the brothers. Ain't nothing meek about me. (laughs) Paul tells us to put on meekness. Can I tell you that meekness and gentleness is really strength under control? That's all it is. It's strength under control. Our Lord and Savior was was meek. I mean, look at the life of Moses. Moses had moments in his life where he lost his temper, where he, where he, there were moments where he got angry. But if you look at places like uh, Numbers chapter 12, verse 3, it tells us that Moses was the most meek man on the earth. Like Moses was the most meek man on the earth, yet he lost his temper, yet he got angry. And so meekness doesn't mean soft, it doesn't mean weak, it doesn't mean passive. Meekness just means I'm strong enough to humble myself to be meek. That's all it means. And so when all hell is breaking loose in your house, in your life, whatever you're going through, it takes meekness to be calm and know that the Lord is in that situation with you. That takes meekness. Let's look at the the last one that he says here. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. How many of us struggle with patience? Like, I can be patient with so many other people, but I lose patience when the, what, with the ones that are closest to me. My wife tells me all the time, you're patient with everybody else, but you're not patient with me. We need patience. And, I, man, some of us, man, that's the one area we need to work on. Do you realize that's, the, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Read Galatians chapter 5. So is meekness. Read Galatians chapter 5 where it walks through the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Patience is one of them. It takes the Holy Spirit not to cuss somebody out. Can I get an amen this morning? I felt churchy right there. It takes the Holy Spirit to be patient. It really does. But patience is one of the, one of the areas that Paul is saying, man, be patient with one another. Be patient. Once again, just like I said, meekness took strength. Being patient, man, that takes it. Losing your patience really is a sign of weakness. If you can lose your patience really quickly, man, I would be thinking, man, this person, man, they're just, they're, that's, that's a weak person if you can lose your patience like that. But that, too, takes strength. Check out, I'm not going to read it, but check out Romans chapter 2, verse 4, as it relates to patience, in, in particular, God's patience. Can you imagine if God wasn't patient with you? Like, think about if God looked down and was like, man, I'm tired of him keep messing up. Like, what if God lost patience with us? First of all, many of us wouldn't even be saved if God wasn't patient with us. We wouldn't have trusted Jesus. And so the five virtues that he gives here is something that you really need to note here. Don't move past the fact that the five virtues that he lists out here can only be accomplished within relationships. You can't do these on your own. These are meant to be fleshed out in biblical community. He's writing this letter to a church. And so these, there's some seats in here if you guys want to come over this way. These, are, these five virtues can only be worked out in this area. And let me be honest. Man, it's easy for me to be patient when I'm in isolation. When I'm by myself, I can be patient as possible. It's easy for me to be kind when nobody, I'm not around anybody to get on my nerves. It's hard to do it when you are around other people. The assumption of the text is that this would be worked out in biblical community within church. Listen to me. If you're coming here to run from church hurt from somewhere else, 
Trust me, give us a few months and we're going to hurt you too. I just want to be as honest as possible with you. There's no such thing as a church that doesn't have church hurt. You come here, you live long enough, you get in relationship, you will be hurt. And I might be the one that that does it. I might say something that's offensive. I might not do something the way you like me to do it. And so these things can only be flushed out through relationship. So Paul is laying here the assumption, right, that we're in context. We're in biblical community. That's the assumption, that you're not isolated. You know, isolation is, that's, I mean, that's really a punishment, right? I told my kids, man, you, go to your room. I want you, you're isolated from the rest of the family. That's a punishment. Yet, when it comes to biblical community, when it comes to church, we like to isolate ourselves. Or we get in the context of community, but we only come in enough to where you won't know us. So we'll come in, we'll go out. We don't want anybody to really know us because we want to keep this image. Remember last week I talked about guarding your brand. We try to make this this facade, this facade that we got it all together instead of coming in and saying, man, I'm hurt. I'm broken this week. And community should be able to meet those needs. Don't run in here. If your thought is I'm just going to be in here long enough to where they see the surface me and I never go deep with anybody, man, we're going against what Paul is saying here. The assumption is that we are deeply in relationship with one another. Now, Paul is going to, he's going to further exhaust this idea of of being in relationship with one another. Watch the assumption here. And not only is the assumption that we'll work these out in context of community, but if you notice, Paul's next verse is going to let us know that Paul assumes that there's going to be tension within community. He assumes that somebody's going to get on your nerves. Look at what he says in verse number 13. After he says patience, he says, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. So the motivation to forgive is not because I want to just be back in friendship with you. The motivation Paul gives for forgiveness is purely based on that you were forgiven in Jesus Christ. That's the motivation for forgiveness is that God looked down, saw your sin. And see, forgiveness doesn't mean sweeping it under the rug. Forgiveness doesn't mean I'm not going to deal with the issue. I'm just going to say I accept your apology and we can keep moving. That's not forgiveness. That is not even the gospel. God looked at our sin and did what? He dealt with it. He dealt with it on the cross, put our sins on Jesus. And so forgiveness doesn't mean I'm going to run past this. It means I'm, I'm going to be more intentional to forgive because of the offense. And so forgiveness, and, and honestly, forgiveness releases you from the bondage of growing bitter. It does. Some of you in here have family members that you just haven't spoke to in years. You have friends that you haven't spoke to in months because somebody offended you. Do you realize when Jesus was on the cross, we're going to be celebrating Good Friday, uh, which kind of focuses on the seven last words of Jesus. We're going to be celebrating that in a few weeks, really next week. uh, No, a few weeks. Do you realize that one of the things that Jesus prayed on the cross was forgiveness of his enemies? And here's the thing about the, the, the prayer that Jesus makes. The prayer isn't even focused on him being offended. Like if you look at Christ's words there, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. 
his concern with the, was with the father's offense. Father, you forgive him, although I'm the one physically being hurt. And so many of us are selfish even when it comes to forgiveness. I can't forgive you because you did me wrong. How many of us have ever been angry because God was offended? Jesus focused on his forgiveness. And so Jesus is our model. According to what Paul is saying here, forgive just as the Lord has forgiven you. His focus here is that we would be looking at Jesus as the standard of forgiveness. Jesus as the model. The one who modeled forgiveness is also the one when he taught us how to pray, says, forgive our debtors. He's the same one that says, forgive 70 times seven. Some of us are like, how much is that? Jesus says, forgive 70 times seven. So Paul is showing us here, man, forgive, but don't forgive just because you think it's the right thing to do. Don't forgive because I'm telling you, forgive because you are forgiven in Christ. All of your sin has been forgiven. Past sins, present sins, future sins are all wrapped up on the cross. That doesn't mean go out and just live a reckless life. But that means that when you do fall, we have an advocate with the father pleading, saying, I died for that. I died for that sin. He, not, he doesn't have to pay for that. I died for it. Forgiveness. And so we must, we must pursue forgiveness at all costs. We can't do the silent treatment. Man, I'm, I'm just telling you now, it's so easy for me to do that. It's so easy for me. That's, how, that's my bent. I don't want to forgive you, so I'm just not going to talk to you. Like, let's not even be friends. I could do that even with my wife. Man, I'm, you offended me. See you in two days. <laughs> All right, that happens. But Paul is showing us here, man, don't do the silent treatment. You have to forgive. Uh, you can't hold a grudge. What if Jesus held a grudge on you? What if he was upset with you to the point where he was like, man, I'm going to give you the silent treatment? That would be detrimental. Let's keep going, though. All right, he says, verse 14, our last, four, our last verse. Above all these, above all of the virtues, all the characteristics, all of the godly characteristics, he sums them all up with one. Look at what he says. And, bu- and above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Remember I said it's almost like putting on clothes. That's what Paul's mindset is, putting on clothes. And so if that is his mindset, it's like you putting on your undergarments, you putting on your tunic. He puts on all these things. And then he says what holds everything together is love. So it's really the belt. Love. Like that's our church. One of the things I love about this church is when visitors visit here, they always say to me, man, everybody's just so loving. I pray that we would keep that. That we be a church that's marked for pursuing Jesus passionately and a church that's marked by love for one another. If you love Jesus, you should be able to love his body. It's no such thing as loving Jesus and hating his body. Like loving Jesus and hating his bride. Like if you came to me and said, man, I love you, but I hate Ty. I'm going to be like, what? That doesn't make sense to me. And so it's all wrapped up. In, uh, in love. It's possible. Here's the thing. It's possible to walk through the five virtues that Paul laid out and not have love. I can forgive you and not love you. I can be patient with you and not love you. I can be kind to you and not love you. But it is impossible to have love and not have these five virtues. Impossible. You can't tell me you love me 
but you're not patient with me. You love me, but you're not meek. You're not humble. It's impossible to have love and not have these five. But if you're just focused on the five, it's easy to walk through that list and not be loving. But love binds all of it together. Our greatest, I told you Ephesians 2, our greatest motivation for love is because you are loved in Jesus Christ. And so as we close our time this morning, I I want you to think about the fact that you've taken off all of these things, or maybe you're still working through some of the things that I need to take off. But at the same time, I need to put on. I cannot empty myself out and not fill myself back up with these five virtues. Let's pray. Father, many of us struggle with these, with these areas. We, we struggle with compassion. We struggle with meekness. We struggle with humility. We struggle with patience. We struggle with kindness. Father, we are some of the most impatient people. Christians, believers, the church, we can be so unloving and so impatient with those that we think don't have it together. Father, help us to realize that your choice and your selection of us isn't because we had it all together. It's not because we had the right things going on in life. We had the right things to say. No, your choice of us was because we were absolutely dysfunctional, broken, and a hot mess. That's why you said, I'm going to choose that person. Father, help us to walk in these five characteristics. And the greatest of them is love. And we see that, we get that in the person and work of Jesus. There's nothing else that shows us that you love us more than you sending him. Not to just die, but to live perfectly so that he gave us something to have. So that when we stand before you, we're, we're counted as righteous and holy because of Jesus. And we're, we're grateful. We thank you for that. Forgive us for not walking with these five virtues consistently. Forgive us. This morning, would you search our hearts and help us to walk out of here and pursue you deeper? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.